Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Reaching the Summit podcast. My name is Todd Buckingham, and I am one of your hosts. You can find me on Twitter at ReachSummitPod. And I'm Zach Dosh. You can find me on Twitter at Zachary Dosh. I'm Greg Steeman, and I'm on Twitter at Greg Steeman. So to start this week, I wanted to talk about a team that we haven't talked a lot about. We'll probably spend most of the second half of this week's episode on the Dakota Showcase as that was the biggest news item in the Summit League this this week. But I want to start out by talking about Denver. We haven't they haven't played a lot of Division One games up until and up until this week. Um, so I wanted to start by talking about them. Uh, they lost eighty three to sixty one to Wyoming this week, and then seventy three to seventy to Dixie State, who seems to suddenly own the Summit League after beating North Dakota earlier in the season. Uh, one of the questions I wanted to ask kind of right off the bat. My feeling was it just doesn't feel like there's a lot of help on the horizon. It's Jace Townsend and maybe Robert Jones, but not a whole lot else. Is that what you guys have felt as well? I think so. You know, I I know last year you could see, I mean, they had some nice, some nice pieces, which, which by the way, Dave Murky has been playing with the Timberwolves. I don't know if anybody's caught that, but uh, he actually played a, a decent amount in their exhibition game, but um, you know, I always felt that, you know, Denver is probably like a shooter or two away from being a decent team. They just uh, have trouble spreading the floor, always seem to be a guy short, always seem to be a guy short. This year seems to be kind of the same. Um, I haven't seen them a whole lot, so I don't want to speak extensively on them, but uh, kind of the same feeling as you, Todd. I just I, I have a feeling that there's going to be a couple of guys short again this year. Yeah, I. I'm kind of with you guys as well. I have not had a chance to watch them play. Um, but uh, Townsend and Jones are probably the, the guys, and, and as Zach alluded to, I'm, I'm going to be redundant. They've, you know, the last few years, they've had those one and two options, um, uh, the way Townsend and Jones are this year, but they've never really had that third uh, that you could really count on and, and was going to consistently provide that. I go back to the year that uh, I believe it's two or three years, seasons ago now maybe where Coach Billups brought in a, a number of grad transfers or a couple of them, and, and I just I think it set his program back um, probably two or three years. It really hurt the locker room. Um, he'd probably be one of the first ones to tell you that. And I, I'm not trying to say that as a, as a criticism of Coach Billups because it's a, it's a common route to go for a number of, a number of programs, especially a lot of mid-majors that choose to do it uh, when there's an opportunity to, to grab a, a grad transfer that can be an impact player. But I think they've been trying to recover from that season, and they just aren't able to get over the hump. So this is really a, uh, an interesting time. Can they grow? Um, we'll see what happens. Uh, it, it's going to be interesting just as we watch the Summit League season play out. But, um, you know, they're, they're in a hole right now, and, and I'm not sure that this is the ideal season for them to be able to dig out of it, put it that way. Yeah, speaking of grad transfers, this would be a really interesting conversation with a coach one of these days, but just how you go about evaluating that grad transfer market, you know, it's, it's tempting, um, but everybody, every player that's in the grad transfer transfer portal, you know, their, their career probably hasn't gone as planned yeah, in one way or the other. And so how do you evaluate that? How you bring it in? You're right. Culture kind of rules everything. Um, there's been a lot of good examples, a lot of bad examples, but I, I think that's probably a better topic for another day. But uh, it's something I'm very curious about. 
Well, and you guys both brought up the fact that you haven't gotten a chance to catch uh, Denver games. They mostly are on altitude, which is which is out in that area. Um, so it is more challenging to to catch their games than it is other teams in the Summit League. Even those that are not on Midco tend to tend to either offer their games as as for free on their website or other ways that you can catch them. Denver even charges um, for the audio broadcast, which. Uh, it seems like an odd decision to me, but because uh, I, I did was able to find the Dixie State game as I was working around the house, but it's hard hard to catch uh, their games, and and so that that is one of the things that's going to make it more challenging for us to talk about them, I guess. Yeah. The the other thing that I did notice, and then we'll move on to some other marquee performances. Robert Jones, who is probably their number two guy in the first two games, played eighteen and ten minutes, and then did play. A few more minutes. Uh, he followed out in ten minutes in their second game. Uh, it, he's just going to have to stay on the floor. There's there's not enough help other places. They have a grad transfer in Frank Ryder, who puts some points up in in limited minutes. But but they're going to need a guy like Robert Jones if if they're going to avoid finishing in the bottom. Which does lead me to one more question: uh, How how does Coach Vill- Billups avoid a bottom of the summit finish? Um, is that maybe unavoidable? And um, what happens if they finish at the bottom? Is it ju- is this just kind of a weird we- year for everybody? And maybe it's he gets another chance to bring in some more talent. Or we really don't know how this year is going to play out with these back to back games. To me, how he handles that, you know, will go a long way towards determining his level of success. Um, I think he's going to have to get get at least one at Western, and it wouldn't surprise me if. You know, the second night of a back-to-back at Denver, they're able to pick off a couple more teams just because it's it's kind of a unique situation, low-energy gym, that sort of thing. My guess is, you know, if he wants to maybe hold back a little bit of the game plan to really try to exploit that second game of the back-to-back and really try to get to, you know, three, four, five, maybe six conference wins, um, that would be kind of my first thought, uh, just because there's going to have a hard time matching up with teams and keeping up with teams, quite frankly. So, yeah. And I think that, you know, you just don't know how does he develop his roster? Does he go to a, a you know, it's really hard to change how you coach. Most coaches are going to coach, um, you know, and, and, and teach what they know best. And you hate to try to be a, a gimmicky coach or anything like that. But you, in a way, you just have to find a way to, to allow your personnel to, um, plate up to their potential within the system that you have them playing. And so I just think that's going to be a challenge for coach Billups. When you look at it, I think he's one of the um, classiest guys in the league. A, a, a great personality has just struggled to be able to get this program going. This, um, you know, in this, this COVID era, whatever you want to call it, COVID season, I'm curious to see how some, Athletic departments are are going to make some decisions, especially if they're difficult decisions. You look at cost cutting. You look at um, you know it, I, I don't know what he's making. Denver has shown the ability to pay their coaches pretty well in the past. It might be an opportunity for coaches, and I don't know where he's at in his contract either. Um, we're talking about mid major programs. We're not talking about an Auburn that can pay Gus Malzahn twenty one point twenty one and a half million dollars not to coach their their team anymore. We're talking about yeah. programs that are literally, as you mentioned, charging people to not only listen but to watch their events. They're looking to generate revenue any way possible um, with limited or no fans coming in. So 
uh, so many factors at play. I, I don't mean to jump around to too many topics, but there's so many factors at play for administrators and for that matter, coaches to have to deal with right now. But when you look at the longevity of Coach Billups and, and uh, what it's going to be, put it this way, things don't seem to be on a great path right now for them to have a strong finish or maybe even make the tournament in the Summit League this season. And that would be a really, really be a difficult season for Coach Billups. And then I think the administration has to make some tough decisions then. Well, and before we move on to the Dakota Showcase, I thought I'd bring up a few uh, kind of big performances from players this week, and that would give us a chance to talk about them and their teams. And then uh, we'll move on to the Dakota Showcase. So first I had Tamel Pearson, who had 22 points and nine rebounds in Western Illinois, 79-73 loss to Central Michigan. And Justin Brookins, also from Western Illinois, with 37 points, four rebounds, four assists, and a 92-88 loss to Eastern Illinois. Anything stand out to you guys in those two performances? You know, I have to kind of take a step back here. I haven't actually been able to catch their feed uh, for Western. Just been able to kind of read the tea leaves of the box scores, things like that. And, you know, from what I can tell by the, by the box scores, I mean, they're, they're competing. I mean, they're, they're coming together. They're kind of finding the rotation. You can kind of tell they're kind of settling into a rhythm a little bit, which is good to see because that was the biggest thing coming into this year is, you know, hey, you have all these missing – you have all these random pieces. How do you put them together – when you don't have exhibition games, when you, when you don't have much of a non-conference schedule or at least a lot of apples-to-apples apples situations and really find your rhythm on the fly. They seem to be kind of doing that. Um, but again, I don't want to jump to any conclusions without watching them a little bit more. Yeah, and I can't speak to their individual performances other than the numbers that you mentioned, Todd. I just know that you know they're, they're playing eight, nine guys a lot of minutes. I think uh, Coach Jeter has brought in certainly a probably – definitely upgraded the talent level overall at Western Illinois. And I think they're competitive. I watched them a little bit against Iowa and that was difficult because, you know, the big kid from Iowa was putting on a clinic and scoring at will. And I was, and I was, I was really good. I mean, Gars is a player of the year candidate, but I do, you know, they, they lost uh, a four point loss out at Eastern. You see some growth with the team without question. And, and um, it's nice to, when you when you have those individual performances as a coach, you're going, all right, you know, we, we do have some guys here that can go off on any given night. Now, how do we harness that? How do we gain some consistency? And and are they doing it within the within the confines of how Coach Jeter wants them to play, or are they kind of going off on their own? My guess is he's he's evaluating and, and seeing how he can um, you know fit these individual talents into into the way he wants to to play in the summer league. I I, I certainly think just early on. Results may not necessarily indicate it, but I think they're going to be a competitive program in the league. Yeah, I, I think they'll surprise a few teams here and there. I still see them. I mean, it's really hard to put 12 guys together that hadn't played and, and compete against teams that were, for the most part, put together the year before. Um, but you do see these individual performances, and I think that does lend itself to some some positives going forward. And a guard like Brookins, who's listed at five, nine, but if he's five, nine, I'd be surprised. Um, you know, he really competes and he uh, hit five out of eight, three pointers against Eastern Illinois really sparked, uh, the team. And it was fun to see them competing. They got down early. And if we remember from last year's Western Illinois teams, and even some from recent past getting down early meant they were going to lose by 40. And they, they did fight back and were in it right at the end, scored 56 points in the second half, which is hard to do in a college game. Um, 
some 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 exciting pieces. I, th- I think kind of the theme that we've talked about already this year with them, it's just going to take some time. Uh, and they, one other, oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, you know, they've got some big bodies that they can throw out there. You know what I mean? When, and and yeah. I think that's always nice to have, especially if they have a, a level of skill. Um, uh, you know, from a physicality standpoint, I think they're going to be a, a team that can match up with some teams or even cause some problems. Yeah. And even, you know, Pearson came from UAB, uh, a former high, higher level recruit. So certainly some, some talent in the players that were brought in. One other performance I wanted to talk about before we move on to the Dakota showcase was Max Asmus, uh, 36 points, six rebounds and nine assists in a close loss, 83, 78 to Oklahoma state. Do either of you get a chance to catch any of that game? I actually caught a good portion of that. Um, I really wanted to make a, a point to that just be just to see, you know, how Kevin O'Banner and Max Smith match up against Oklahoma State, who obviously features the number one recruit in the nation, Cade Cunningham. So, um, statistically, Max Smith outplayed Cade Cunningham. Um, it's probably not going to happen a ton this year. He's going to go high in the draft, um, and Max, you know, got one of those zones where. Yeah, he was shooting from the logo and making it and keeping them in the game. And somehow he kept getting open shots. And it was it, the game was a lot closer than it probably should have been. Um, yeah, it's fun to kind of watch that Earl Roberts Oklahoma State rivalry, if you if you'd call it that. Um, they're they're at least very familiar with each other. Um, you can tell that. Uh, I think they played a number of times before. But you know, it, I I really think you know it's going to be one of those situations where teams are just going to have to trap. Well, you know, they're going to have to trap the ball screens when Max Asmus comes off. I don't know, uh, unless it's like a, an NDSU who's probably going to be able to switch all the ball screens, um, you're probably just going to have to get the ball out of his hands and, and take your take your chances three on four um, because he's just he's too good. He can come off and shoot that thing three, four feet behind the arc. And uh, when he gets rolling, that's when Oral Roberts is at their best. So that was my biggest takeaway is that, man, you know, I, Greg, I think you said it earlier, right? Some of these higher-level teams can't uh, can't dignify themselves with doubling maybe Rebrach in the post or trapping Max A. Smith coming off the ball screen. But, you know, we see these players in this conference make them pay for not doubling. I mean, even at a high level, these players are going to have to be doubled and trapped. And that, that was the one thing that was really a big takeaway for me is that, man, they just kept letting them come off ball screen after ball screen and knock down our shot after shot, and they wouldn't make an adjustment. So um, interesting to see. You know him and Kevin O'Banner, they fit right at home in that uh, in that Big Twelve. At least it uh, looked like that that night, anyway. So, pretty impressive game. Um, still looking for the rest of Oral Roberts. You know, maybe that's uh, kind of a uh, due to Max's high level of play. I mean, geez, why would you want to take the ball out of his hands? Um, but like you said, I think he had nine assists, right? So, um, yeah. he's you know, it's not like he's he's fortunate or anything like that. So. Really impressive game. It was. It was. It was a high level game. That was one I kind of had circled because I thought it could potentially be an upset, but uh, it was a fun one to watch. Yeah, it really was. It, it was entertaining. And um, you talk about Asmus. You know, certainly impacted the summer league as as a, a young player last year. He's backing that up um, early on, and it doesn't look like he's gonna um, show any signs of a, of a slump this this season. Following up an impressive season last year, and I think that's. It's going to be a great combination. We've talked about the O'Banner Asmus combo, and O'Banner, you know, was was exceptional. Um, it still perplexes me that he only had nine shot attempts, 
but yeah. uh, rebounded the ball well. You know, I think he had 15 points on nine shots. He's he's so efficient. Um, I hope he doesn't get bored watching Aceman do all his stuff. But I agree with you, Zach. I think you know teams are going to have to say, all right, how do we contain him? How do we get the ball out of his hands without? You know, and that's the thing when you when you go into a double, a hard double on a ball screen. Now you've got your other three guys forced into a rotation situation defensively, and that's what you want to do um, offensively is, is force the opponent into rotations and then go from there. And so, if Oral Roberts can use that to their advantage and probably anticipate that some teams are, are certainly going to make that effort to get the ball out of his hands, um, you know, they can they can adapt and and, and try to be prepared for that, but it was an extre- extremely impressive performance. One of the things that really intrigued me down the stretch was I believe OR, or, or Oklahoma State had a two-point lead late, and I think there was about 48 seconds maybe with an ORU had the ball, and, I, and I'm watching this game go back and forth, and basically it was a, you know the last 10, 12 possessions both ways were all about all about a 15-second shot clock you know everybody was taking a quick shot going going and I thought well here's a great opportunity to go two for one and then it just perplexed me because after racing up and down and taking quick shot after quick shot and Oral Roberts has a chance to maybe go quick again and guarantee themselves the last possession of the game well they slow it down and, and, and then ended up not getting the look they wanted and, and then or, or um, Oklahoma State ends up with the ball in their hands and, and then up a they're up and or use force into a fouling situation. So that kind of perplexed me down the stretch, not necessarily utilizing uh, the clock to their advantage, but they certainly showed themselves well. Um, as we've all talked about, ORU is an extremely talented roster. Um, no newsflash there. That's what it's been for a number of years, and, and we'll see what Coach Mills can do with this group. It's going to be a lot of fun to watch them play. Well, and one of the things that I maybe hadn't noticed as much before is just how good O'Banner was at passing out of the double team. They didn't double Acemas much, but when they would double O'Banner, he he's quick with it. He he's always looking up. He and and even as a team, Oral Roberts moved the ball a lot better than they have in other games that I've watched. And if they do that, they are very dangerous. And that's a good point about Kevin O'Banner, though, because a, a lot of guys when they get trapped. They're not necessarily physically tough enough or mentally tough enough to like keep their wits about them and find the open guy, right? That's kind of the point of trapping is you're supposed to kind of fluster the person. And, you know, Kevin O'Banner, is, he has no problem stepping right through two guys and splitting the double, double team and passing it out of there. He is strong. He's quick. He's smart. Um, he's a tough guy to double. You can't really double him. So I think if you're picking your poison, you got to trap Max and Ace from this kind of go, going back to what I said before, but I, I thought that was really interesting what, what you said about Kevin O'Banner. Cause yeah, you can't, you just really physically can't trap him or double him necessarily. Well, he's difficult. Uh, the game, the game is slow for Kevin O'Banner. You know, and you, when you watch him, it, you know, you go, is he playing hard? And at the same time, <laughs> I, I just think he's, I just think the game is so slow for him. He, he can dissect it. I think he's an extremely intelligent basketball player, very skilled, um, has range similar to Ace's, to be honest with you. And uh, I, I just think he's a, a an exceptional talent in this league. And it's going to be interesting to watch those two guys and then the, the personnel. There's a ton of ton of talent around those two. Uh, ORU, um, same topic of conversation. They are still amazingly talented. And, uh, you know, DeShane Weaver even had, uh, I think, a fairly decent performance. We were kind of 
texting during that game. The three of us were going, well, man, maybe he's just so limited. Then all of a sudden he made some plays, right. stretched the defense, and, and, and utilized his length. Um, if he continues to, to gain some confidence and, and gain some conditioning, what, what a great third option for ORU on a consistent basis. All right. Um, oh, one other thing I wanted to talk about before we move on to the Dakota Showcase. Um, an overall theme that we don't need to spend a lot of time on, and it really doesn't matter much in this season, just with COVID and teams even opting out of the end of their non-conference play and all of that. A lot of close losses um, that if the if the conference wants to move forward as a higher uh, mid-major conference, Years forward, we're gonna they're gonna have to find a way to win some of those games. It's we I've just noticed the theme where the last two weeks we've talked about all these close losses and how that's sort of impressive. If if you want to be a Missouri Valley, if you want to be a Mid American Conference, even you gotta gotta win some of these games that are that are close losses. Yeah, and I have to believe with this, you know, if if transfers, if you get if you get the opportunity to transfer once and become immediately eligible, I have. I feel like that's going to just diffuse the talent throughout college basketball uh, more than it even is right now. And I think, I think the level of parity in college basketball is fantastic, but I agree with what you're saying. You know, this conference, the goal should be to, to get two teams in the NCAA tournament. Right. And I think, you know, me personally, I wish there would be, you know, two teams from the summit instead of like eight or nine from the ACC, you know, instead of the 12 and 12 Syracuse, Put in, you know, USD and SDSU or something, or NDSU and SDSU, something like that. Um, that's just my two cents. Obviously, I'm biased, but uh, you, you know, you're right. It, it, they, they've had some opportunities, um, but these coaches will be the first one to tell you, you know, we're not throwing horseshoes or hand grenades here. You know, close doesn't count. It, it, it's nice to make progress, but it, this is about winning. This is a high level of basketball. It's about winning. Right. Yeah, and to follow that up, I, I like the topic. What we're realizing is, um, you know, you go back to, I think maybe the game everybody remembers is North Dakota State at, at Kansas. You know, it, it just reiterates to me why these high majors refuse to go on the road. It really wasn't a home court advantage. There weren't 16,000 screaming fans, you know, uh, you know, trying to influence an official to, to make that one call that they might hold back on when it's just a pickup game in an empty arena. Um Syracuse is always going to make the uh, NCAA tournament, and they'll never leave the Carrier Dome before conference season play. You know, conference season starts, but that's and that's why because they they don't want to take those risks and go on the road where, instead of playing at home in front of huge crowds, not only from a revenue standpoint but just from a home court advantage standpoint. So I'm not trying to be a, a, a throw water on you know throw throw cold water on this idea that it can be a multi bit league. It can. But there's there's still a long ways to go for that, and uh, I agree with you. What it has what has to happen is you have to stack up some quality non-conference wins. And to be honest with you, South Dakota State does have a couple of you know a quality loss to West Virginia, and then they have the Iowa State and the Bradley win. But in we'll, we'll see if that would be enough in case you know they if if they have a great run through the Summit League, and then aren't able to win the Summit League tournament. Are those wins going to be enough to get them any type of consideration? It'll be interesting to see how it shakes out. I, I totally agree with the idea that the bottom half or even middle of these Power Five conferences is not as good as the top two, maybe three teams of a lot of these mid-major conferences. Just like what you said, Greg, 
Why do you think Jim Beheim does that? He knows his team isn't that good. These teams <laughs> aren't that good. And even if they are, they're not good early in the year. They're young. Watch Kentucky play, man. There is not a thing about Kentucky that scares me about sending in. I mean, I like it would be so fun to watch like SDSU or NDSU play Kentucky. I mean, the the, the contrasting styles would be fantastic. Um, but you know, it, it's going to take the committee holding them accountable for this lack of scheduling and the lack of diversity in their schedule for there to really be a little change. And I wish there would be. Um, but I, I think kind of what you're what you're what you're talking about, Greg, is that that trigger point of, okay, you're not playing anybody, you're actually not going to make the tournament this year, because we see what you're doing, we're not going to reward that, and so it's kind of the same thing that happens in college football too. Until that happens, we're probably not going to see Syracuse schedule anybody different. For example. Well, and you're both right. There's no reason for the high major teams to schedule different than they already are. It, yeah. it you know, Zach, we were tweeting back and forth at the end of the Dakota showcase and sort of joking around, but I, I actually think some of these mid-major conferences need to take it into their own hands. Scheduling a tournament, a multi-team event with some high level mid-major programs so they can get higher. You know what? I forget what they're using now. It's not the RPI anymore, but the numbers go up. We even saw that with Omaha who, who started with some losses, but played higher level mid-major teams. And we're still rated high in Ken Palm and RPI and all of these. If if the conferences kind of get together and find a way to get more of those games, it maybe it doesn't work for everybody, but maybe the conference that does the best out of it has two or three teams that are rated really highly. Well, and, and the thing about it is all these mid-major conferences struggle with the same thing. They struggle with putting together a really solid schedule of like of like-minded opponents and like level opponents you know the, these mid-majors they kind of have this non-conference schedule made up of like some d2s and then some power fives and then it's just it's kind of all over the place getting them together is exactly why things like the the summit league horizon league uh challenge was a was gonna be played this year and getting maybe four conferences together i mean hey why not i think if you get uh an event that big all of a sudden you get some sponsors and you probably get espn they, they would right. probably televise something like that. And, you know, the, the committee members, they're humans, too. You know, if they haven't seen you play, you're kind of out of sight, out of mind. And pushing some of these teams to the forefront, I think, is a fantastic idea. I, I'm, I'm in agreement with you guys. And I, I think there's even some mid-major leagues that have started to tweak their own conference scheduling where they allow the last maybe three or, or you know, two or four games to – remain open to say, all right, let's let our top teams play each other. And uh, so that, so that the RPI or the, or the strength of schedules um, ratings don't continue to plummet because that's typically what happens in mid-major leagues. Their, their strength of schedule is, is high, you know, in their non-conference schedule. If they're willing to go play some teams and, and, and find out, find a way to, you know, to, to eke out a couple, couple of quality non-conference wins, what you end up seeing then is, and I, I think it's never more evident than, than on the women's side. USD and SDSU women will go out and play anybody and everybody. They'll win a lot of those games. And then throughout the course of their conference season, their strength of schedule just continues to plummet. So, mm -hmm. and, and then in turn, that, that's, you know, that's when they're, they become a fringe two-bid league. On the men's side, you know, is there something that the conference can do where they say, hey, listen, you know what? The first 
so you know so and so number of games is going to determine our seating for the conference tournament in the last two weekends we're going to let our top teams play each other so their strength of schedule doesn't continue to drop and maybe they get some quality wins against each other i don't know but those are some unique ideas that i've seen some mid-major leagues putting in place to try to make themselves a multi-bit league and, and we'll see if there are some more creative ways that uh, leagues can can find a way to, to improve their their status when it comes to the NCAA tournament selection committee. And not only improve their status, but quite frankly, save money, right? I mean, if you have mm-hmm. the, I mean that, that situation in Sioux Falls, it's a pretty efficient situation to get in a lot of really good games in a short amount of time without having to fly all over the country and this and that. Um, I don't see a lot of drawbacks to it. I mean, maybe somebody can point something out to me, but, um, you know, especially when your non-conference schedule is, is 12, 15 games, things like that. Um, I think four or five games in a situation like that is a fantastic idea. You, you know, I'm going to jump in here quick. You know what I think would be, a, a, and this just came to me as you guys are talking, I'd like, you know, the, the, the crossover events we're talking about right now, what if four or five mid-major leagues got together and said, hey, let's start our conference season two weeks earlier. And then after our conference season is over, let's take two weekends and allow our best teams to play against each other in non-conference games so we can improve our strength of schedule, we can get quality wins, and it doesn't necessarily negatively impact the seeding for the conference tournament. You know, these multi-team events, it'd be great if if, if a few mid-major leagues got together and said, Let's do these, but let's wait until the end of the conference, until after the conference season is over, before our conference tournament starts, so that we can put our best teams against each other and improve our strength of schedule, improve our our standing in the eyes of the committee. It's a unique way. I mean, there might be some people going, well, you know, it might hurt us in preparation for our conference tournament, whatever it is. But if the true goal is to say, listen, we think our league is good enough to put more than one team in the tournament. Well, let's come up with some creative ways to do it because these multi-team events in the preseason, nobody knows who's going to, you know, you have all the preseason polls. You think you know who your best teams are, but let's play out the conference season, find out who the best teams are, and then let's play play some of these out-of-conference, you know, best teams against each other head-to-head so they're not hurting themselves and they're actually improving their chances of getting consideration for for the NCAA tournament down the road. And I suppose, you know, in, in some ways, if you're playing your conference tournament a little earlier, it's almost like matching in football, right? Move the games to Wednesday. You're the only show in town. You know, that, that week leading up to the NCAA tournament, I love it. Because a lot of times, like, for example, the, the West Coast Conference or, you know, some of these smaller conferences that I don't get in regional coverage on ESPN 1 or 2, um, now all of a sudden you get to watch them. And you're like, hey, you know, I want to I want to watch these teams play before this NCAA tournament starts. You know, I have to fill out a bracket, things like that. And all of a sudden you become the only show in town. The conference tournament is you have your own weekend yourself. There's a lot of merit to that, too. Well, and Greg, that's basically what we were talking about in Twitter. But I like your idea better. We, we talked about having four teams from the MAC MVC. Uh, Summit and Horizon, the top four teams. But if you actually knew who the top four teams were you really are getting the top four because we all know that preseason doesn't always lead to what happens in the, in the later season. So if you started the conference season two weeks early, took the top four from those four leagues, 
And to Zach's point, ESPN would put that on because yeah. championship week, everything is on the sun, you know, Southern conference tournament. All of those are on championship week on ESPN and something like that. And those four teams are likely going to be higher in RPI and all of those metrics anyways. So a chance for them to uh, better that you could, and it may not help every conference, but most of those four conferences are only sending one team anyway. So let's say it helps two of them get another team in. It it, it helps everybody eventually. Well, I, I agree because it would have to be, that would have to be the approach. The leagues would have to say, here's what we're attempting to do. We're attempting to improve the stature of our league in the eyes of the committee. So let's play our conference season out, see who the best teams are, give them a chance to go head to head, improve their status at the end of the year, rather than all mid-major you know, teams basically continuing to hurt themselves when it comes to strength of schedule and RPI and whatever else they, they use right now. Um, it, w- it would be unique. It would be innovative. But I also think it would be something that shows to the committee, we are doing everything we can to play the best possible competition to show you that we deserve to be in the tournament because we know we can't get these high major programs to ever come to our place or, or, or play us on a neutral floor unless it's a, a preseason, you know, early or holiday tournament in a normal year. So I think it would show um, actually a lot of good faith saying we are, we are literally trying to do whatever we can to, to make maybe two, as you said, two of those four leagues, a multi-bid league. I mean, the only argument against this is just, well, Hey, this just isn't the way that we've done it. Right. Which is about the worst explanation that you can possibly get. (laughs) Absolutely. But, 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 you know, like, like that's kind of, you know, they're going to be like, well, but this, well, there's not really a good reason to not do this in my opinion it, there there's probably you know it's not comfortable but guess what growth comes when you're not comfortable you know so i don't know i i love the idea would love to chat with uh somebody a, a decision maker about it and just kind of the ins and outs of something like that just to see what they would say and you know um again yeah. you're not you're not going to be worse off than you are now no and i and i'm with you and i'll i won't beat this to death i'm with you zach on that my response would be, okay, well then just don't complain about being a, a one bid league. Yeah. Inst- you know, inst- instead of trying something innovative that shows we are doing everything we can to play the best competition late in the year, improve our status. Yes. It would be unique because you'd have more conference games, maybe over the holiday break where the students aren't around, whatever, but what's your ultimate goal? What is your ultimate goal? And if your ultimate goal is to become a multi-bid league, then what are some innovative ways that you can do it? And my thought is at the end of the regular season, you know who the best teams are. Then you can put those best teams against each other in some multi-team events. So, yeah, good conversation. I like it, this. It would even make the conference tournaments more uh, more competitive, right? I mean, because, you know, if, if, you, if, you lose, if you lose the first game, maybe there's the backside of the bracket or something like that. Some way to make the conference tournament even more aggressive and, and more games and and showcase the, even the, all the other teams keep teams alive things like that. I don't know. There's there's a lot of good aspects of this. All right. Well, we did have a I suppose it was called a multi-team event in Sioux Falls, the Dakota Showcase, and um, so South Dakota State finished two and one, as did North Dakota State and UND and USD both at one and two. Did the showcase give us any hints on what we have coming in conference play? Well, I think a lot of battles, a lot of battles, mm-hmm. a lot of familiarity, a lot of just grinded out games that are going to come down to the wire. You know, there's not going to be any surprises 
this year in the summer league. I don't think a lot of returning, a lot of returning players, a lot of returning coaches, um, and a lot of really good basketball. Um, different basketball than last year. Like, like we've talked about in previous podcasts, you know, the, the last couple of years has really kind of led the way with guard play this year. It's a little bit more of the post, things like that. Um, but it's, there's just going to be a lot of battles, a lot of battles, a lot of games in the 60s probably. But it's, yeah, I wouldn't even surprise me if it starts to get a little chippy. We saw some of that. Um, and that kind of happens when you play teams over and over again, things like that. But a lot of battles. Yeah, I, I think so, too. I mean, and, you know, when you look at, you know, I'm going to go to Douglas Wilson. Um, South Dakota State didn't know until the, the shoot around uh, the day of their first game that that he wasn't going to go. But it's it's the same foot situation. It wasn't uh, a, an incident that led to it. it. This is an ongoing thing for Douglas Wilson, an explosive mm-hmm. player who relies on having a, a body in pretty good shape to contribute in, in, in such an impactful way that he does night in, night out. And, and my thought was with those guys, you know, whether, whether it was Douglas Wilson, whether it was Deshaun Allen Eikens for uh, UND, if they're not 100%, you, you, you don't risk it because you need them at, a, at as close to 100% for the, you know, the conference regular season as you can possibly get them. Uh, but but it also allows some other players to step into some roles to maybe expand their roles to to earn the the trust and the confidence of the coaching staff. And it was interesting because uh, that you know the the South Dakota State North Dakota State uh, the Bison came back from a couple of double digit deficits made it close it was hard fought and uh, you need to be able to make a few more plays but you learn so much about your team and, and Eric Henderson did too at South Dakota State. Uh, same thing with UND. I think, you know, UND, Brian and I are doing that game, and I'm thinking, oh, I, I need, they might end up with this. And then you give NDSU credit. That that was like a slugfest Summit League tournament game. Uh, low possession, hard fought, great half-court defense, trying to find a way to, to manufacture some points when you needed it. And then UND just kind of struggled down the stretch. But credit North Dakota State and their defensive effort there was a lot of intensity. I, I always laughed about this because I'm going, I credit the coaches and the administrations in the league for saying, yeah, let's do this. In this unique year, mm-hmm. this guarantees us an opportunity to play each other, even though they're our rival. They're these, the, the NDSU, SDSU, UND, USD, the in-state matchups, the, the border wars. When they're initially setting it up, they're going, yep, this is, this, our guys need games. We don't care if we're playing each other. I have to believe when they got down there Wednesday night, they're thinking, mm, you know what? It's still South Dakota State. It's still UND. It's still USD, you know, if you're the NDSU staff. These games always mean a little bit more. And uh, I'll tell you what, there was a lot of intensity and a lot of, uh, a lot of guys playing their tails off. It was a lot of fun to be able to watch it and be a part of it. Uh, but I'm with you. Um, so my, uh, you know, I'm bloviating here. I'm with Zach. There's going to be a ton of battles hard-fought games, and uh, these teams just – this uh, they'll get after it. And a lot of great coaching in the Summit League, to be honest with you. Yeah, this felt like March. This was mm-hmm. not another non-conference game. You could tell that these that these were guys that, that didn't necessarily like each other. There was a ton of passion and emotion that you do not see in a non-conference. You know, the non-conference is normally you go through the motions, you're playing some random people, you know, you're trying to focus on yourself, things like that. And so this is just a fantastic glimpse into what we're going to see in March. 
I mean, Philip Perbracha, just passionate, emotional, pumping yeah. his fist, things like that. You don't see that mm. in December a whole lot. You know, you get Stan- Stanley Amuda, who's normally not that uh, overtly um, demonstrative with his emotions, things like that. He was, he was, he was ready to go, man. He was, he was, he wanted that game bad against South Dakota State. And uh, you normally don't say that about the non-conference schedule. So, I mean, resounding success. Resounding, you know, it, everybody was safe. It was great competition. It was fantastic to watch. I think the coaches have a lot to work on on each of their teams. And a lot of that they have identified and things that they feel comfortable with now. So, all around resounding success, if you ask me. Well, and it really just showcased what a great, I mean, that there should be multi-team events in that area. You've got two arenas that could be used if needed. It, it's such a great place to have that type of thing. Well, I know sometimes coaches get a little uh, hesitant about three games in three days, things like that. And these guys are in the best shape of their lives. You, you wanted these guys to play five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten games in a row. They'd 100% do that and they'd battle it out, right. you know. So, I mean, they're world-class athletes in the best shapes of their lives. And uh, it was fantastic watching, just knowing at the end of the day, you're going to be able to flip on the TV and watch these guys battle it out. It was really a treat. Yeah, it really was. And, and uh, I was fortunate to be a part of it. I, the, the, the Sanford Pentagon group did a fantastic job. Um, Sanford Health, I, I'm not a huge fan of having that thing jammed way back into my skull to get tested so that I can go in there. <laughs> but at the same time, I was willing to do it. And uh, it's always good to know that I that I don't have it, but it um, it was th- these were these were different types of games, and I and you just loved being that close to it. Uh, these guys were getting after it. They were not your typical non-conference uh, games. These, those are battles. I mean, the last night, you know, North Dakota State UND, uh, those two teams were getting after it. Same thing with USD. You know, USD hasn't won a game this season. And they came out, and, and I didn't have a chance to watch that. I was listening to it. But it sounded like there was a crowd there, and a lot of that was because of the USD bench. Those guys wanted to get after it. And uh, and that got I, – I even texted the guys that were two in the game. I said, sounds like it's getting testy. You know, if you got to throw a chair, don't be afraid to protect yourselves. It might get a little <laughs> messy in there. But um, how often do we get that in December before conference play starts? Uh, rousing success – couldn't agree with you guys more. Hey, Greg, maybe just tell us a little bit about the whole setup, you know, uh, what you had to do to be available to call the game. And, you know, how did the game feel calling it uh, in your little glass case of emotion? There? <laughs> yeah, no, it's a good question because what's funny, and, and some people might not know this, the very first night there were two officials that had to do back-to-back games. The reason for that is that two officials had to be sent home because they tested positive. So the next huh. morning, on Friday morning, there were two new officials that came in. And so we, Brian and I got tested with all the officials at 10 in the morning. And so we're visiting with them. And so that way, that then that's part of the official, the official thing too. You know, one got, one came from Arkansas, one came from Dallas and they, oh, wow. they're up there, um, you know, on short notice. And, uh, and, and so they're each, there was two separate three man crews then for the last two nights. But those are the types of things that we're going to be dealing with this time of year. Uh, Zach, you and I may go to the game and thinking we're going to announce it. And um, if there's not an official that shows up, we may be running up and down making bad calls. So um, <laughs> you, you never know what your role might be when you go to the, the arena that evening. So 
Um, it, no, but it was it, to, to be right there. It was it was handled so well. Uh, it was it was managed so well by the, the Sanford Pentagon group. And I think the teams were treated very well. Everything fell into place. And, and that was the great thing. You know, the testing, nobody had to be sent home. No games had to be paused. Uh, it was it was run in a way that that put the safety of the student athletes first and foremost and still allowed um, everybody to watch some really hard fought quality college basketball in this region. Well, I'd heard that there was two officials that had tested positive, but that was obviously before they called the game, right? Yes. Yeah, there were because yeah. they got tested before that. The, the I think the morning of the first games. Well, wow. two of them had to take off, so then there was only four officials available. So that <laughs> yeah. that means you know two guys had to go back to back. So it's it's like back in the high school days. You go ref the JV game, and then you got to you know yeah. take a twenty minute break, and you're refing the varsity game. But it's a little more intense and, and a little more a uh, little more of a workout. I asked one of them, Anslinger, when he walked in, I said, "How do the legs feel this morning?" He goes, "Ah, they're, they're a little tired." But yeah. At least he only had to do one game the the next two nights. Yeah, I'd imagine that. Um, so yeah, I mean, we're probably gonna have to get tested before every single game this year. I'm, would be my guess. So we're gonna have to get there probably a lot earlier to before we call these games, huh, Greg? Yeah, it depends if you have the rapid test or if you uh, get the deep test back into the back of your nasal cavity. You know, the, you might have to get expedited, but that'll be up to actually that'll be up to the institutions and how they're handling that. Um, I just sit and go, well, tell me what I need to do, and and I'll do it, and uh, whatever it takes to be able to call the action. We'll see what happens. Yeah, no doubt about it. Happy to do, you know, whatever it takes to, to pull this off and keep everybody safe, obviously. It's going to be too bad. You know, I think one of my favorite things about the game is I like getting there really early. And I, like, I, I just like watching people warm up. I just, there's just something about, I, I think there's a correlation to it, you know. And I like chatting it up with the coaches and all that. And, you know, you have those off the, off the record conversations about just kind of how things are going and try to get a feel for things. And so, uh, you know, we'll be kind of up in the rafters, that would be my guess. Um, so I'm going to miss that, but, uh, you know, it's, uh, I'll take whatever I can get at this point. Yeah, it's certainly new, unique. One of my favorite things, Greg, was when they came, one of the officials came over to tell you something, uh, what, what a call was or what have you, it looked like you were spending your two minutes for cross-checking, uh, over <laughs> yeah. in your little box there. Um, so it was just, it's just so different, but however we get basketball, it, mm-hmm. we'll take it. So I, I do think we should, it, we've talked a, few, a little bit about it getting chippy and I do think it's, it's worth talking about the Noah Friedel incident um, where he was running through a screen hit uh, Stanley Amude in the, in the groin. And I'll just give you guys my kind of take on it. And then, and I'll let you go from there. Uh, completely uncalled for. It's a stupid play. I wouldn't have any issue with him missing more games because of it. And at the same time, I think back to we want we always want to make it into a who is this person type moment. Like we want to define the person off of a two second decision and completely forget that he's 19, 20 years old. And and really, it's a chance for him to admit fault, grow and develop. And I think back to myself, you know, I, I had said on Twitter, I don't even want my children knowing the stories about when I was 20 years old, let alone um you know, going back to that time and I'm a completely different person now. So with a Twitter world, we really like to define people off of things like that. And I, I, I have a tough time with that. It seemed, uh, you know, watching the replays, the more replays it, watching it live, I wasn't a hundred percent sure, but you know, the replays, you know, 
obviously I'm not inside his head. It sure looked very intentional. And, uh, I I think the officials agreed and, um, yeah, there's obviously lines that you can't cross. And I don't know if it was him getting frustrated or what the deal was. Um, whatever he tried to do to to Stanley Mude did not work. (laughs) If anything, it backfired (laughs) like it usually does. Um, and side note, he handled himself really well. Yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah, he he channeled all that energy and, and emotion into um, finishing off the Jackrabbits. So um, th- that was good to see. Um, like I like like you said, you know, uh, he'll have to do his time, whatever that is, um, and then hopefully we move on. These these teams play each other again this year, and um, you know, and, and Friday we'll have to answer for that on the court. And that's really how these things get settled, right? Um, you, you sell them on the court, you battle it out. You know, I think Friedel is probably pretty lucky that there's no fans this year. Um, you know, we don't want it turning into a Grayson Allen type situation here, but um, you know, want want to acknowledge it, not make too too big of a deal about it, um, not minimize it, but uh, and then eventually move on, hopefully, because um, he's a good basketball player, and uh, I don't want the narrative of Noah Friedel to be to being that type of player. I want it to be, you know, him scoring 30 points in the summer league, things like that. I want, I want that type of track for him. I I think you guys bring up some really good points and, and uh, I don't know coach Lee that well. I I know Eric Henderson pretty well. I I know Paul Sather pretty well. I know David Richmond pretty well. I know that uh, they're the type of guys I'd love to have my kid play for. And Noel Friedel, as talented a player as this league has seen. And listen, I've watched John Conchar. I've watched Nate Walters. I've watched Mike Dumb. I've watched Vinny Shahid and, and Marlon Stewart and, and amazing players in this league. Noel Friedel, as talented a player as has played in this league. And he's a 19-year-old young man. Made a horrendous decision. And, and I, 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 as I'm driving home, I'm thinking, I wonder if they sent a GA back to the locker room to sit with him. I, I wonder what he thought. I listened to Eric Henderson in the postgame, and he talked about the fact that no one knows he made a mistake. He's going to be held accountable. There's no doubt in my mind that Eric Henderson will yeah. hold him accountable. And I, what, what I hope is that he's able to look back on this in his career and say, it was a stupid mistake, but from that moment on, I, I, I grew as a person, I grew as a man, I grew as a teammate, and that's what, to be honest with you, I think everybody um, outside of the USD fans, and I, and I don't say that as a criticism <laughs> of USD fans, I say that as, it's just the USD, SDSU, the UND, NDSU. Right. I think everybody, and to be honest with you, I think the true basketball fans at USD want him to grow from this because they want to play against the, the, the best person, the best competitor that Noah Friedel is going to be night in, night out, and that he becomes someone that would never do that again. Uh, and so right. I, 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 that, that's the way I look at it because, you know, when you sent that tweet out, Todd, I, I just thought, no kidding, absolutely. Um, there are so many stupid mistakes I made. I think Noel Friedel is going to be a better person um, because of how Eric Henderson handles this. And hopefully, most importantly, 
because of how Noah Friedel handles it. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think this um, – I I, I'd be shocked if this was a reoccurring thing. Uh, full full trust in Eric Anderson to be able to handle this, and, and that'll be that, and we can move on. That would be the best thing for everybody. So, so I don't want to end on that note. Um, and I, we're, we're closing in on our hour. Those of you listening don't realize that we have the time to spend another half an hour talking after we stop recording. Um, so we could go forever, but we try to keep it under an hour. So I'll, I'll end it with, we had a bunch of great performances at the Dakota showcase. Who was the most impressive to you guys, either as an unsung hero kind of player, a, a person that maybe wasn't um, a, a little bit under the radar, but, but shined or who was your Dakota Sh- showcase all tournament player or player of the tournament type player? Well, I'll, uh, so, so thinking about the all tournament team, um, of course you, you have Stanley Mude, Philip Rabrach. I think you start those there. Um, probably have a Moody as the MVP, um, and then the, the, I, I think you have Baylor Shireman on there. Um, I'd also put Sam Greasel on there, so that gives us four. Um, and then the, the other one, the, the, the last spot, I, I'd probably have it come down to between, you know, Tyree Eady, Alex Arians, um, and probably AJ Plitzewhite. Um, I think all those players played their roles very well. Um, a, a role player is kind of like a backhanded compliment sometimes, but it's really not. I mean, everybody, even a star player, is still a role player. Um, and all of, all of them had had their moments. They're really developing their niche. Yeah, I, I love Tyree in the post. His his strength and patience uh, is just it ends up being very effective. Like you guys mentioned on the broadcast. You know, he's the type of guy that he's just kind of slow and steady. You know, he's going to get to 13 to 15 to 17 points. Um, it's not going to be in a personal 8-0 run, but um, he gets there. And, and he's, you know, I mean, you saw a couple times where the freshman got a little loose on NDSU, and he handled it. He, he handled it. He told Coach Richmond, nope, I have this. You know, you know he's respected. You know he's the leader. Uh, AJ puts away, I think we should start talking about him as one of the best passers in this league. Uh, very dangerous off the ball screen, very dangerous. Does a really nice job passing it, makes good decisions, um, and obviously scores a two. Um, so, it, you know, all those guys and, 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 and uh, Arians, um did a really nice job stepping up when some of the other guards were uh, maybe not playing as well as, as Coach Henderson would like for, for South Dakota State. Very consistent, very consistent. All three of those players are just very consistent, a little under the radar, um, but they had a nice tournament. Yeah, it was. It's interesting you mentioned that. Obviously, Amude's explosion last night was was uh, impressive. Clearly, the that was the performance of the tournament, going for forty one yeah. on on twenty five shots without question. But I, um, I'll just stay with USD. I'll echo Zach's sentiment. AJ Plitzway can play. Uh, it was fun to watch Arshin Bow come off and and uh, you know find his niche as a guy who's a catch and shoot threat from behind the arc. But Plitzewhite is so good. He knows where he's going with the ball. He, I, he's the ultimate quarterback. He uses his eyes to move defenders, if that makes sense. But you watch him. He knows where he's going. I just laugh. He, he's, he's a true coach's kid, but he's got not only the skill set, but the athleticism. He's, he's an impressive player. Really like that. Um, I think you referred to the Todd. I think it uh, was it Xavier Fuller, who I think is going to continue to improve. There's, I think, 
USD has the most room for growth. USD and UND have the most room for growth with their teams, kind of developing some roles and, and uh, finding out where guys fit in. Um, and so, I, you know, USD, after two difficult losses, the first day to end up beating their in-state rival the last night and in the manner in which they did it, uh, they have a lot to build on. Uh, you go to South Dakota State, um, again, I still think when they're fully healthy, they are one of the most complete teams that I've watched in the Summit League. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the night uh, against UND, I thought that it was it was good to see. Um, good gosh, who's the big kid, for, for goodness sakes? Not Wilson, but help me Dentlinger? out. Uh, uh, Dentlinger. Apple? Apple Dent- well, yeah. yeah, Dentlinger. Dentlinger kind of got back to his old form against North Dakota. But Apple also had an opportunity to step in with Wilson out. Um, he's going to be uh, okay. Everybody else steps up. That, that perimeter group of Arians, Shireman, and Friedel, Wow, um, that that's going to be their stabilizing force. North Dakota State, you you hit on it, Edie. I love the kid. I, I refer to him. I was just thinking as you guys were talking, he's my really guy. In in other words, when they come back and tell you what his numbers were, I'm going to go really because I didn't think they were that good. And night in, night out, he just does it in such a quiet, consistent manner. Love the kid. Love his demeanor. Greasel, so good, so solid. Last night, Cruiser. I don't know that he could have had a more frustrating night. The number of, you know, I'm talking about shot attempts within three feet that he weren't wasn't able to finish, yet at the same time had a, a huge putback late in that game, never hung his head. His body language never went south, and that's something that Dave Richmond, you know, has to look at and go, that's why this kid uh, is one of the guys that I'm going to count on night in, night out. And then you go to UND. There's a few guys, you know, the Tyree Iannocho, I, I think he's a nice player, a point guard. Doesn't shoot it great. But when you look at all the other things he brings to the floor, he's going to be in a, have an impressive career in the Summit League. I like Sabian Sims um, on the wing. Some length, some versatility, some touch from the perimeter. Does a lot of little things. I think he had double-digit rebounds against North Dakota State last night, which, you know, I, I might have been able to do that. There were a lot of missed shots last night. But anyway, um, Sims is good. And then uh, Phillip, hey, one of the best bigs in the league. Love that kid. So, uh, so much fun to watch, so much talent. And we we have a, an entire conference season to be able to watch that uh, unfold in front of us. Yeah, so two things. Uh, Mason Archambault, um, I don't know how familiar everybody is with the last name Archambault. You should mm-hmm. be very, very excited about that. Um, he had a couple different offers from Summit League schools, and so I was very interested to see where he ended up. Um, you know, the, the, the Archambault last name could be a whole nother podcast. Um, <laughs> him good. coming off the bench and knocking down three threes was the least surprising thing I saw all weekend. I was like, oh, yeah, well, there goes another Archambault knocking down a bunch of threes. That, that's what they do. Watch out for him. If he gets his nice little roll coming off the bench, he could be a big part of what they do coming down the stretch. And then moving, and then kind of going back to what Greg was saying about UND, um, not only Phil is doing a, a great job, he does a great job sealing. You know, you notice he doesn't battle. He doesn't battle his defender a whole lot. He kind of says, well, if you want to front me, go ahead and front me. We'll get a skip over the top and then a post entry. You know, UND is probably one of the smartest teams that I've seen in terms of how they utilize skip passes and just passes around the perimeter to make sure they get the right angle to enter the ball into the post. And so Philip just kind of reads whatever the defense is. The perimeter knows what to do. They get the ball to the right angle. Then they get the ball to him. 
And, you know, his mid-range game is like, the, you know, this lost art of the mid-range jumper. He has found it. And it's like catching all these defenders off guard because, you know, who who practices guarding against a mid-range jumper? Nobody does that, right? Because nobody practices that on offense. Phil Provacha does, very proficient at it. Uh, he's extremely efficient with him in the, in the post. He normally doesn't take, you know, early on in his career, he'd take probably a couple, two more dribbles, things like that. But he's just very efficient. He's very comfortable. The team does a great job of getting him the ball, and they continue to get him the ball. They don't forget about him. You know, with, with to, to bounce back to, to South Dakota, you know, the thing about Stanley Muda is, like, whenever he gets a catch on the block, he scores, and it looks so good. And every time he scores, I'm like, there's nobody that can do anything about that. And it's just, it's always surprising how much he hangs out on the perimeter, whether that's by design or whether that's what he wants to do, things like that. But you'll notice when they need a bucket, you know, when the, it, on the game winning possession against UND, what they do, they went to him on the block. I'd almost like to see a little bit more of that. Obviously, Tali has forgotten more about basketball than I'll ever know. And so this isn't necessarily a criticism of him. But man, the more ways that you can get the ball to Stanley Mude, obviously, the better off the Coyotes are going to be. All right. Well, we will wrap up for this week. It was great to talk to you guys again, and we'll, we'll talk to you next week.